Hello and welcome to today's episode of 7 Bigger Millennials, where together you and I are on a mission to prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships as we make our biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And if this is your very first episode, I always like to say welcome, super excited to have you here. And if you're returning, welcome back. You know how much I appreciate you for coming back week after week. And today, you and I get to hang out with Neil Moore. Neil is originally from Melbourne, Australia, and his wife and their three young children moved to the United States in 1994. He's a pianist, which he says he's reasonably okay at, (laughs) a composer, which he says he's more competent at, and an educator, which he believes is his unique ability. He's been self-employed for over 40 years since his early 20s, and over the last several decades, he built a multinational music education organization that has been created around a remarkable method of learning that he developed, and the organization is called Simply Music. At Simply Music, they're interested in developing programs and projects that fundamentally impact populations of people, and they focus on creating breakthroughs in creativity for humanity. From his earliest years, Neil heard music and pictured it in his mind in terms of shapes and patterns. This relationship to music became the basis of his entire approach to learning and playing piano. As an adult and a coach to traditional piano teachers, he had an opportunity to teach a young blind boy to play. Using his unique approach to music, Neil taught the boy through shapes and patterns and subsequently discovered that his playing-based approach could transform how quickly all piano students of all ages could learn to play. Thus began the foundation of what has become the world's largest playing-based music education institution. Neil's methodologies are taught by licensed educators throughout the world, and his self-study program caters to students across 124 countries. In this episode, you're going to learn so much, but I want you to look out for three specific things. Number one, why Neil's experience of watching his home and cars being taken away after filing for bankruptcy led to a profound mindset shift for him, and even though at the time they were so broke, they had to sell their wedding jewelry to feed their family. Number two, why Neil believes we are a profoundly musical species and what music has to do with creating breakthroughs in creativity for humanity. And number three, we dive into what Neil calls the relationship conversation. And this is so important, but I think specifically what is relevant for you is that when you aren't happy or excited about your entrepreneurial journey or this path that we're on, usually we decide that something must be wrong and why Neil believes that feeling that way is actually completely right. So all that to look for in today's episode. But before we get started, I want to give a pre-show listener shout out, which this week goes to Scott, who left a review saying, excellent guests with motivational and helpful stories. I feel like I'm hanging out with friends and listening to a good discussion after a big day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And keep the good work coming. So thank you for those incredibly kind words, Scott. I really appreciate that. And if you're a returning listener and you haven't had a chance to leave a review yet, here's what I'm asking now. It's awesome if you leave a review, if you follow Scott's example, that's fantastic. But if you're listening to my voice right now and you're listening on either Apple or Spotify, those two platforms allow you to simply scroll down and tap a review. It tap whatever stars you feel like this show is deserving of. And that's all I'm asking for. If you want to take a few extra seconds, Spotify doesn't let you do it, but Apple does to leave a review. That would be so awesome. And if you're listening to this on some other platform, you're like, what about me? <laughs> you can go to ratethispodcast.com slash 7FM to find out all the options to leave a review or a rating. But whether you choose to do that, that or not, I appreciate you so much. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible conversation with my friend, Neil Moore. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? 
The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Mr. Neil Moore, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here, my friend. Thank you, buddy. Great to see you. As always, Brandon, you're awesome. <laughs> so good to see you. Okay, so I'm going to start by giving our friend listening with some context about the very first time we met. So the first time I met you, we were in a Zoom room, and everybody got a chance to share a little bit. And some words came out of your mouth that gave me the Spider-Man tingly chills. And I'm like, I really am excited to meet this guy. And you had mentioned something about creating breakthroughs and creativity for humanity. I'm like, that's cool. Then we got a chance to meet in person. And we're on this 70-foot yacht, a boat called Just Because, at an event called Tribe for Leaders. And Neil walks in. I'm sitting on the boat. I see him come through. And just for anyone to describe, like Neil has this incredible loving energy about him. And one of the first things you'll notice that Neil usually has something hanging out on his neck. And so I think this opens the door to a great conversation, Neil, and it's actually a huge uh, conversation starter for many times in your life. But would you, mean, ex- would you mind explaining the story of your necklace and what it means? Yeah, well, I have, um, I have several of these necklaces. Uh, the necklace itself is called a kartika. And the, the first one that I acquired, I didn't know what it was. I was in a Tibetan artifact store. Uh, I've always worn big jewellery. And I saw this beautiful piece and it was just fascinating. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful necklace that would make. And so I bought this necklace. And from the day I started wearing this necklace, I've never had a day where people have not stopped me and asked me about it. Not a day. And I've been wearing Kartikas now for maybe a decade. At the time I bought it, I didn't know what it was, but I was fascinated by it, by it so I began to research it a little bit. And uh, the initial, my initial desire and interest was I just thought its design was beautiful. There was something fascinating about it. What I've come to since learn is that in Tibetan culture, it has ceremonial significance. There are two parts to the kartika. There's the, the, the uh, a top part. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether people will be able to see this or whether we're, they're just going to be listening via audio, but there's a top section of the necklace. Uh, anyone can also look up kartika, K-A-R-T-I-K-A. Uh, the top part is referred to as the dorje, and I've read different interpretations and meanings ascribed to the dorje, but uh, the interpretation that I most connected with was this representing being kind, being kind to people, being loving. And I'm, I'm that sort of guy regardless, so I really love, you know, I just felt that I was very aligned with that. Yeah. The second part... The second part, the lower part of the kartika, uh, which has a crescent-like shape, a really full crescent-like shape. Some people look at it and think, wow, is that a bird or is it a pair of lips or is it a boat? It has that look like the lower part of Aladdin's lamp. Um, It's actually in Tibetan culture symbolic of a blade, uh, which is referred to as the vajra. And also I've read different interpretations about warding off you know, spirit, evil spirits and things like that. But the interpretation that I read that I most connected with 
was its representation of the blade symbolizing the cutting of attachment to things that aren't important. Hmm. There's an aspect of that that also represents the strength of the self. And then the Vajra, this symbolic blade of cutting attachment to things that aren't important. I just really connect with all of that. And I love that that it's an opportunity for people to just include them in my space. And uh, it's really cool. Anyway, since then, I've I have I've got about a dozen of them that I actually wear now. And I've got some other larger ones um, that are quite beautiful. Um, yeah, so that's just a cool, a cool thing. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I just, I wanted to start there because it gives everyone a picture about, I think, what you represent. I think you have a very peaceful energy to you. And it's just cool that you have like a physical representation of what that means. So um, that was just kind of a fun, random thing I wanted to start with. So let's fast yeah, forward and let's go into some of your entrepreneurial journey. So I want to take us back to the year. The year is 1981. We're in Australia. You're about 23 years old and you've just opened a restaurant. I would love for you to describe a little bit about what was going on in your life at that point in time. Well, the context for that uh, was that I was raised in a family where my parents were successfully self-employed. There's five kids in our family. There's only seven years between the five of us. I'm the youngest of the five. Uh, None of us went to university college. Uh, And it wasn't as though education wasn't encouraged. It just wasn't really discussed. Uh, I think it was just the norm in our world that you went into business. And if there was a skill that was needed that required college or university level expertise and qualification, well, then you'd employ that person. And so uh, for me, I, I, I love learning, but I hated school. I was really passionate about how I hated school. And, uh, in fact, I don't tell this story often, but I, uh, I'm a 10th, I finished 10th grade and my 11th grade, most of the year I skipped class, found clever ways of forging notes and finding excuses to be able to skip class and got to the end of the year and for, you know, the final exams, I knew I'd fail those. So I had to think of an excuse that would get me out of doing the, my finals. So I actually was able to convince our family doctor and a hospital surgeon that I had an appendicitis attack and that they needed to put they needed to put me into hospital to remove my appendix. And I had to come up with something that would literally take me out of action for sort of that week of exams. And so um, I look back, back at it now. It's really, I, I, I just think, wow, how disturbed a kid was I, which I was, <laughs> and still am in some ways. But the, the fact that I would do something like that. Now, I thought nothing of it. I just thought that was a really clever idea. And, uh, and so I, you know, went in and in, into hospital, was hospitalized. They took out my appendix and I got off doing finals and got a very <laughs> polite letter from the school saying, you know, we wish Neil well in his future. I mean, I, it, I, I went to a very, very uh, highly recognised school um, and uh, they just were happy to see the last of me, I think. Ferris Bueller has uh, nothing on Neil Moore. We'll just say yeah. that. <laughs> so I just wanted to get out of school and get into the workforce. And uh, so that was like I was 17. And I had a, a variety of jobs, good uh, good jobs, and uh, ended up working in the wine industry. And I had an amazing position in the wine industry, working with this organisation that had a very, very diverse role in the wine industry. They were involved in um, 
in the agricultural side and the, you know the growing and the production and the making and the distributing and back in the days when you know email lists didn't exist they had a magazine a subscription of about 40,000 local people which was a lot and they had a you know very large retail presence and I was in my early 20s and I ended up having this position with this company where they would, as they grew and acquired more stores, I would be put in to, to transition from the old management to the new the new branding, the new organisation. And um, I think that came about because, you know, I had to do, I, it was competent enough in my ability to articulate things. I've always had a very high uh, sense of the importance of order and organisation. Had a strong work ethic, uh, and I understood the role and the nature of the brand. But I was also able to work with people who were being transitioned out of a business that they had, in some cases, been a part of for a very long time. And I needed to be able to manage that transitional relationship side of that, so that they were comfortable buying into the psych ecological components of making a shift like that from one regime to another, so to speak. It was a really fascinating job. Uh, one of my brothers had gotten into the restaurant industry. Uh, I was working full-time with this uh, organisation, but then I was working three or four nights a week in my brother's business. And uh, I was looking for my first opportunity to get into business myself. And so I was in my early 20s. I think I was 23 or 24 when uh, I bought my first restaurant. Um that was a French fine dining restaurant, and uh, I bought that. It, it had been operating for a couple of decades by a well-known chef, and so I I purchased an established, successful business. And uh, the only experience I'd had really was working in my brother's restaurant, uh, but I had a strong belief in my capability to to learn what it was that I needed to learn. I've done that several times in my lifetime, stepped into projects and businesses that I know nothing about and have made them work. And uh, I've, I very quickly learned uh, in that business that people were hungrier for recognition than they were food. And I also understood the importance of relationship. And so I, I transitioned over not too long a period of time, all of the team that were there, uh, I wanted to bring in people that had not been a part of the industry. My highest criteria was not employing on profession. It was employing on personality. I wanted people that were just beautiful people, people that loved people and loved being around people and loved being connected to people. And uh, I, I also believed and found that if I employed people with the type of personality that I was looking for, I could train exp expertise. I found oftentimes if you hire an expertise, you sort of you then have to deal with the the personality you've in, you've in, inherited. But employing on personality gave me the the best of both worlds, you know. In, and that that was a very successful um, approach in a small business. So uh, we grew that business very quickly, and it was successful, and it was known in this. You know, I'm from Melbourne, Australia. I live in the US now. I've been here for nearly 30 years, but um, born and raised in Australia. Uh, we bought that restaurant right at the time when there was a new wave of Nouvelle cuisine, the new French cuisine was sweeping the world, really. And it was also at a time when uh, Melbourne was uh, hungry for 
a new form of entertainment and and dining out became the new form of entertainment. And so we were right there when that was happening and we're also right ahead of uh, introducing the the, the new approach to food. And so uh, the business grew very quickly and, you know, we were, we were operating seven days a week and uh, we, you know, were booked out weeks and weeks in advance. And it was just, you know, it was an amazing experience, but it was a strange thing for me. You know, I was in my, here I am in my, maybe my mid twenties now coming towards my mid twenties, driving it, you know, an expensive BMW. I've got a beautiful home now in a, in one of the most, you know, more prestigious areas of Melbourne and uh, beautiful wife, beautiful kids. Uh, But I felt really unsatisfied. Strange thing to think, well, you know, my level of wisdom and insight at that time was I I should be satisfied. I'm, I'm doing well, I'm doing financially really well, you know, far better than the vast, vast majority of people my age and even, you know, much older beautiful home, beautiful car, beautiful wife, beautiful kids, great business. I just felt deeply unsatisfied. And it was a strange paradox to have, you know, in quotes, success, but not satisfaction. And uh, what one of the motivators of me getting into business, I had a very, very strong connection to music that was evident from infancy. My parents tell me stories about me as distinct from my older siblings. My relationship to music was very, very strong long before I could even walk. Uh, You know, there's a sort of more to the story than that, but uh, I discovered I I was about three or four years of age when I can first remember that I hear music and I see two- and three-dimensional shapes. Uh, I began studying music. We, we, in fact, my older brothers and I, we all began learning piano at the age of seven. And uh, when I first started music lessons, my teacher would play, and those very same shapes that I could see and picture in my mind's eye when I listened to music, I could actually now visualise them across the keyboard. And so I developed my entire foundation of musicianship with this relationship with shape and pattern. And so music became was a very uh, integral part of my life. In fact, I always felt... For as long as I can remember, as long as I've had consciousness, I've always felt like I belonged to music, but I didn't even really know what that meant. I just felt like that that was home for me. That's where I was meant to be. That's where I should be. Um, as a as a young kid, maybe by the time I was eight or ten, I've always felt like I'm, I'm meant, destined for a big life, a big adventurous life. Um, but I wasn't quite sure what that was, uh, and so. Here I am, I have this relationship with music. Uh, I'm from a family of business people. I want to get into business. And I think what I've always what I always thought was it would be cool to get into business, do well enough, young enough to make enough money so I can sort of retire and do music, not even really knowing what that meant. I just felt like that's that would be the great plan. And so you know, getting out of school early was important to me because I wanted to get on with the plan and get on with working and uh, having the good fortune of the type of jobs that I had getting into business. That seemed like that was all part of the plan. But then the paradox was here I am still in the early days of self-employment. I mean, within a year of my first restaurant, I d- essentially doubled the profitability of the business 
and you know had some of the financial trappings surrounded that surrounding that but i just it it didn't speak to me i didn't feel satisfied and i you know for me it was like well okay what do i do do i get a do i get another business which was what i decided to do um but it was the same thing buy the business improve the business far more profitable doing well enough financially but just not being satisfied um i got out of the industry for a while sold my my business and uh made a i what would have appeared like a bad choice although you know one of the things about life is one you never know what you're being prepared for nor do you ever know what you're being saved from and so uh lots of lots of in between but we ended up losing everything in the the very end of 1989-1990 stock market crash uh, the, um, of the United States hit, impacted the rest of the world. I was in a business that um, there were all sorts of financial complications, but at the end of the day, we we lost everything and I went through a complete financial wipeout, which was I'm so grateful for. I'm just so fantastically grateful for. You know, I remember there was one particular day. So by this time, I have three children. Uh, in Australia, when you go bankrupt, you lose everything. Just It's just a wipeout. You know, anything that's a redeemable asset gets sold up to try to address the issue. And I remember one particular day where um, it's very common for homes in Australia to be sold by public auction. They put a big board outside your home that advertises that it's up for sale. There's going to be an auction. And on the auction day, you know, the auctioneer comes with a gavel and the, the pedestal and People come and gather outside the home and a public auction takes place. So this particular day, they were putting the board up to sell our home. And I remember a truck being there to take, take away my beautiful car. And uh, I, I just had this moment where suddenly I saw my life as this really simple equation. Oh, wow. I've been pursuing money or business in order to make enough money to then do what I love. And it suddenly just looked like and felt like a broken equation to me. And uh, I had this visceral experience that even though I was losing everything that I had, I was losing nothing of who I am. And it was strange. I felt really whole and complete. And it was actually in that moment of, of I'm losing everything I have, nothing of who I am, I'm whole and complete, that it was in that moment that I saw this equation in my life. You know, it was being about business to earn money to do what I love. From this day forward, I will not do that. From this day, you know, I'm someone who believes in divine design. I believe that, you know, for me, I believe there's God. I believe there's a, a God who had an intended purpose for me. And and I don't even care if that's true or not. I just get great value out of believing that it's true. And and so for me, it was just an act of faith. If there is such a thing as divine design and I'm going to just surrender and commit myself to that, I'm going to trust that a pathway will open up and it will reveal itself. I'm just going to do music. Still didn't even know what that meant. Mm-hmm. And I've got the practical reality. I've got a wife and three children to support and I'm broke and I don't have an income. And what am I going to do? I'm going to try and just make it in music. What the heck are you, are you doing? Yeah. You're crazy. I wasn't crazy for me. To me, it was just like, yes, that's what I'm doing. And, um, 
there were a series of events that occurred. One, I'd had a completely non-traditional background in music. So I'd learned, I'd developed my entire musicianship based on this relationship that I have of, with music of seeing shapes and patterns. So any of the things that the world of musicians know, like the you know, understanding of the theory and the math and reading music and understanding all of that, I didn't have any of that. So the first thing for me was, well, if I'm going to be in the world of music, I need to educate myself in the traditional language so that I can communicate with other musicians. And uh, so I began formal studies. Uh, but what am I going to do for an income? And I had a miracle occur. This um, a, a, a guy who I had met years earlier, who I didn't know very well at all, but his partner at the time, she had worked for me. And uh, she knew somewhat of what we were going through. And I just get a call from this guy one day saying, hey, look, you know, I know what's going on. I've got some capital. How about... You know, I put up the money, you, you buy a, another business. Uh, I just need an, an interest income on my business. That's all I really need. And it was just like, wow, this is an incredible opportunity. If I can buy a business that, you know, my wife and I in the early years had run our businesses together. If I can set this business up, have it managed simply, my wife will be able to run the business. It will provide us with enough of a cash flow. I can pursue music and it takes care of our financial needs. And so we went down that path. And uh, that became just an extraordinary blessing. And I was able to start formal studies, um, train myself in learning how to read music, began teaching uh, students. And I built up uh, a really successful small business, but enough for us to be able to do well enough to take care of ourselves. Yeah. I wanted to come to the United States because I always saw it as the music epicenter of the world. My wife had lived in the United States in the mid-'80s doing her senior year of high school as an exchange student. She wanted the opportunity to live here. So we came over to the United States. Uh, really, our life possessions in three suitcases, $5,000 to my name, and, and just the belief that there's a future here for me that had not yet revealed itself. That's beautiful. And, uh, I, I quickly built up a reputation. I built up a large studio, you know, a body of students. That that was our sole source of income. My wife wasn't allowed to work. It was part of the immigration, you know, visa status uh, arrangement. And uh, I built up a reputation as a really good teacher, and I was also involved in working and training other teachers too. And uh, I get a call one day from this government agency, and they say, hey, we're working with this eight-year-old boy. He's blind. We think we can restore his sight. He's having to go in a hospital pretty regularly for one procedure or another. Uh, we'd love him to have some activity in his life. Do you think you could teach him music? And I just jumped at the opportunity, yes. Uh, and it wasn't until after I'd already agreed to doing that that it suddenly occurred to me, gosh, the only thing that I've trained myself in how to teach is this more traditional reading-based approach. I've got this kid who can't, who's blind, and I didn't know anything else other than he's not going to be able to read. What the heck am I going to do? It wasn't until that moment, that moment actually, that it occurred to me for the very first time, consciously occurred to me, hey, I never learned how to read when I was a kid. What was I actually doing? So even though I had built up this entire foundation of musicianship, it had never been a conscious thing. It was quite organic. It was just the way that it had occurred. And it wasn't until that moment that I actually started to sit down and look at and bring language, consciousness to it and language to it and descriptions and, and terms of art, as I would call it, describing to myself what, what I was doing. And I thought, wow, I can see how I'm, I'm constructing my musicianship using shapes on the keyboard, seeing shapes, but I bet I can show this kid how to feel those shapes. I wonder if this would work. So I started showing him this approach. 
And um, he just took to it like, you know, a duck to water. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. He's learning so quickly and playing so well. And I thought then, well, he's doing so well because being without sight, his ear is so developed. And uh, but what happened one day is I said to his dad, are you happy with, his name was Wade, the boy, are you happy with Wade's progress? And his dad said, well, we're not only happy with it, but he's teaching his four-year-old sister how to play this way and she's blind as well. And that was a, that was a life-changing moment. I, I, every time I talk about it, I still get this neurochemical flood of, you know, hot flush in my body because I just knew something really major had happened in that moment. I thought, wow, if I can teach this kid blind, who's blind, how to read based on shapes and patterns, and he's able to turn around and teach his four-year-old sister, and she's able to play as well. What would happen if I showed all typical learners this approach? And I started to see amazing results doing that. And I thought, well, maybe I'm getting these results because it's organic to me. I wonder if other teachers could replicate my results or what would happen if I showed them this approach, which I did, and they came back saying, we haven't seen anything like this. This is really amazing, these results. So I went into this sort of like a laboratory period of how, how far can I flesh this out? How far can I take this approach? And the more I explored that and began to assemble it into a system of learning over a long period of time, uh, and we started to see amazing results. Uh, as I started training other teachers, we started to see amazing results. And so, um, you know, here we are now with, uh, you know, a global community of educators, uh, a student community across 131 countries. General public has spent probably in the vicinity now of $150 million on my program, and we've become, in our field of playing-based music education, we're, the global leader in our field. And um, back then I didn't really understand the enormity of the opportunity, but now I have a very, very different understanding of how an extraordinary contribution and what sort of a, a contribution we can make to humanity at large. That's so incredible. And thank you so much for sharing your story. It's just, I can picture you sitting there with your family in 1989, watching as everything gets taken away and you not knowing what that really meant. And it's so cool to see how that played out and you having this conversation right now and you being able to share the impact that you created on people all across the globe to help them to increase their musicianship. And so such a beautiful story is you shared so much gold right in there. And, you know, the, the incredible story of helping a Wade to play the piano and how you didn't even realize you had this unconscious process that was going on that you needed to have this opportunity to teach this blind boy how to play. And that, that it led to all this incredible stuff. So Love all that. I wanted to talk about what I alluded to at the very beginning about how you want to create a breakthrough in creativity for humanity. And so for the person listening to us right now, I want you to explain a little bit as to why music is the vehicle for creativity and maybe touch on if somebody doesn't believe they're musical, why this is super relevant for them. Yeah. Well, we're at a very uh, unique time in human history. Uh, we're witnessing the arrival of a technological tsunami and the impact of technology is just now accelerating up the knee of the exponential curve. So it doesn't take much at all to look and see how technology has already revolutionised the planet, yet what we're going to see in the next 10 years 
will have everything that's happened up until now pale into incomparable insignificance. So, you know, as we witness human beings become a hybrid biological, non-biological species, as we're seeing artificial intelligence and the role that that's playing as where, you know, we'll get to witness human humanity becoming a multi-planetary species, there isn't an industry that's not going to be either made utterly extinct or entirely transformed by this cohesion of technologies uh, we're witnessing now the potential of not just lifespans, but health spans taking us well into our 110, 120, 130. In fact, you know, I was just on a call uh, earlier this week with um, Peter Diamandis, Ray Kurzweil, uh, talking about where the, the regard for death just becoming a techno, techno, technical issue and uh, the possibility of... of uh, I don't want to talk about an infinite life. Uh, in some respects, it's a very difficult, difficult thing for us to really get our head around that. But the idea of this reaching singularity and this, this change in velocity where for every year we live, we actually add more than that year to our potential lifespan. <clears throat> it's quite remarkable. <clears throat> One of the things that's, abundantly clear is that the critical attribute of the future is creativity. We need to think more creatively than we have ever thought before. And the species that we are, where we have, we've come from a world that has been very slow change oriented, and it's allowed, we've developed a mind that functions very much on linear thinking, and that's no longer adequate. You know, we need exponential thinking now. We need to take it up. We may need to develop a geometric leap in our thinking capability. And what's essential to that is we develop our creative capability. One of the things that we're learning is that creative musicianship has a very unique impact on the brain. So where is speech and, and smell and math computation and socialization, uh, for example, occupy certain regions of the brain? Music occupies the entirety of the brain and it fuels the brain very uniquely. Uh, we, now, we now know that learning music grows the brain more than twice as much as any other form of art or sport, which is a really extraordinary thing. And in that growing of the brain, it, what happens is we grow connectivity and the growth in connectivity in the brain translates to increased capability, in, increased creative capability. So if you can imagine if I'm at point A and I need to, to go to point B, if I have one road that goes from A to B, I've got one option. If I've got two roads, you know, d directly connecting point A and B, I've got two options of getting there. If I've got three roads that connect A and B, I've got three, three ways of getting there. But if I had one more road, but instead of making it from A to B, I just connect those three roads together, I go from having three ways of getting to A to B to nine ways. Mm. So as we, as we develop interconnectivity, it exponentially increases the number of options that we have. And Steve Jobs said it so simply, you know, that creativity is really our ability to connect the dots, essentially in its simplest format. And it is a very difficult thing to accurately, to, to, to give a prescriptive definition of what creative 
creativity is. But essentially, it boils down to the ability to think differently. People say, well, it also has to have the quality of being of value. But, you know, there are, there are great artists whose work wasn't valued until, you know, after their death. So that, even that's a very subjective thing. But to me, ultimately, it comes down to we need to think differently and we need to think more creatively than ever before, not just to function in the future, but to flourish in that future. So anything that we can do that fundamentally impacts our creative capability is tremendously important. And what we've discovered is that creative musicianship grows our the degree of connectivity it increases the amount of connectivity in the brain and directly contributes to our creative capabilities so rather than seeing music as being merely a form of self-expression which is fantastic a form of you know of sharing of community of having another voice of it allowing all sorts of emotional uh, connection to ourselves and emotional uh, res- resolution and development for ourselves uh, we need to start understanding that creative musicianship provides us with critical neurological nutrition. Hmm. And just as we might eat well, but we know that we need more and we supplement, likewise, we need to start understanding that there, are, there is an activity that we can engage in that provides us with the nutrition that actually future prepares our brain. And that's creative musicianship. And what we know with uh, with our playing-based methodology is that it gets people connected to their musicianship and it develops their musicianship and their musical capability faster than any other system in the world. Hmm. But Neil, I don't have a musical bone in my body. What would you say to me if I said that to you? Oh my gosh, I love that. You know, it's an interesting thing because, you know, our, our whole thing is where everything we do is based on the premise that all human beings, without exception, Everybody is profoundly musical. We are so musical that we can't see the forest for the trees, quite honestly, you know. We pick up a toothbrush and we brush our teeth. We pick up a knife and cut a loaf of bread. We knock on a door. We're at a concert and we applaud. Let's just listen to that. It's this beautiful, smooth, even rhythm. It's so natural. Try applauding unmusically. Try applauding without having that sense of rhythm where it's, it takes so much effort to actually clap unmusically. You and I could be walking down the street, Brandon, let's say we're going to grab a cup of coffee and we're walking down the street and I'm talking, how's your business going and what's happening here? We're engrossed in a conversation, oblivious to the fact that our feet left right, left, right. We're having a conversation in the background, perfect, smooth, natural, even rhythm of our walking. And it's not only that, that person who says, I haven't got a musical bone in my body, let's look at what they're saying. Not not at the words, but let's look at the musicality of what they're saying. I haven't got a musical bone in my body. I haven't got a musical bone in my body. I haven't got a musical bone in my body. It's such an extraordinary, complex musical phrase. If you are walking and you are talking, you are demonstrating a mastery over extraordinarily complex musical concepts. All human beings are profoundly musical. The problem is the way that we've taught music for 300 years is we've treated music as a math. And although it can be explained mathematically, it doesn't belong there. In fact, it's this mathematical approach of insisting that you know, we, we start by learning how to read music, which is to me is as bizarre as saying from now on all little children have to learn how to read as a means of learning how to talk. 
you and I get to talk for years and then we're five or six years of age with already having had years of developing verbal fluency and then we start understanding the symbolic representation of that. We learn to read years after we've developed the foundation of speaking. And honestly, if we understood that how music needs to be treated, truly treated as a language, don't introduce reading, no theory, no math, you can learn how to play by being just shown how to play because you're so profoundly musical. All we're going to do is take the musicality that's oozing out of your mouth when you speak, the musicality that's oozing in your feet every time you walk around. We're just going to redirect it into the hands, knowing full well that the brain by design is a pattern-seeking device. So if I can show you how to do something based in shapes and patterns, well, that's homogenous to the brain. It connects with it immediately. Combine that with your natural musicianship. That means that you can start learning today and be playing by tomorrow. And you're not just playing, you're actually nourishing and fueling, igniting your brain and developing your creative capability and preparing yourself for the new future. Yeah, so beautiful. And I want to make, I want to solidify this point for all the entrepreneurs and leaders that are listening. I just know from having conversations and hanging out with Neil, it's just like so many entrepreneurs are focused on their unique ability. They're focused on their health and their eating and peak performance and productivity and optimizing this and optimizing that. And like one of the things that stuck out to me, Neil, when we had a conversation is just talking about how as an entrepreneur, we depend on our creative ability to create new ways of solving problems that don't exist in the world. And so if you have all these different ways, you're optimizing your health, you're optimizing your eating, all this other stuff, what are you doing that actually improves your creative capability that allows you to do the primary function of being an entrepreneur, which is solving more problems. And so by opening this world, um, and, and Neil is the reason why I have a piano sitting here. Admittedly, I still need to get back to, uh, I sent Neil a video a while back of like, I started taking his course and within 15 minutes, he has you playing right away. And I had this great texting conversation with Neil. I was like, look, look what I did. <laughs> I was playing something right away, but it's so cool. And, and so that is something that I've always uh, admired about, you know, or I admire very much about what you do is that you're unlocking that ability for us to have a tangible way to practice creativity in a way that is outside of the context that we normally live in. So love all of that. And I wanted to talk in the time that we have remaining about uh, one more topic. And this is something that I read a whole, I don't know if you want to call it a book or PDF that you created. And you talk about the relationship conversation and you specifically talk about the relationship between, uh, in this book, it's a child and their learning experience. And so I wanted to read this clip really quick because I think this is really relevant um, for anybody listening in any relationship that you're in. And I love Neil's thinking on this of how he thinks so high level on what everything really means. You probably picked that up on that when he comes to when he's when the way he articulates his uh, you know musical content. But this comes from the book. So virtually no one recognizes that two completely different types of lessons are actually required. There are two entirely separate domains of experience, which is learning and behavior. And yet we have somehow collapsed them into one. If you as the parents are truly committed to your child loving music as a lifelong companion, then that commitment contains a particular truth. The simple truth is that we're asking your child to enter into and maintain a long-term relationship. And that must mean that means we must develop a clear understanding of the nature and characteristics that underscore all long-term relationships. It's absolutely critical to this and failing to do so will invariably put you on the music lessons aren't for everyone path. To avoid that path, you will need a language for thinking and talking about long-term relationships. You as a parent must develop tools for your child to navigate those relationships. So I know I pulled that specifically talking about parents and kids, but the reason why I want to talk about this and it's so relevant is because once you have this perspective of understanding that 
as you go through the a long-term relationship with whatever it is, whether it's music or entrepreneurship or whatever you're in, that completely changes your perspective. And you have really unique insights on the, the main components of all long-term relationships. So I know that was a, a really big setup, but I think that this helps reframe lots of things for people. So Neil, would you mind sharing a little bit in the time remaining, the, the main components of all long-term relationships so that we can understand that better, whether or not we pick up a musical instrument or we're pursuing entrepreneurship or a, a romantic relationship? <laughs> I, I like to, to simplify things. And I think oftentimes very complex concepts have simple architecture. With regards to when I look at long-term relationships, and as I say, my my one of my foundations of that is if my goal is to maximize the likelihood of people having music in their lives for the rest of their lives, then they're going to be entering into a long-term relationship. And certainly you can't ask a child to navigate a long-term relationship and understand the distinctions of that when they've never had one. But when I look at any long-term relationship, whether it be a marriage or a partnership, whether it be, you know, the uh, a, a, a professional pursuit or a sporting uh, career, whatever that case may be, a vocation, when I break it down to what, um, is there anything that's common to all long-term relationships? And as the best that I can tell is that there are six components that underscore all long-term relationships. Three of them are what I'd call quantitative that deal with time. Three of them are qualitative, that deal with the type of experience that we have. And I understand that this is a conceptual conversation, but what I mean by that is that when I talk about quantitative or qualitative, qualitative I'd be talking about during any long-term relationship, there are good times, there are okay times, and there are not so good times. Good, okay, not so good. And when I'm talking about quantitative, I'm talking about brief periods of time, medium periods of time or long periods of time. So if we look at any graph, even if it's the value of real estate or the, or the value of gold or the stock market, we will see that it, you know, it's on the rise, so that's good, and that could happen over a long period of time, and then it might even out, so it's plateauing, and then it might dip a little bit, so it's heading down into the valley, and it might be crappy there for a while, and then it, it improves. And then this, If we mapped out any long-term relationship, what we would see is that it's going to look like one of those graphs. It's really important that we understand that having plateaus or valleys, the not you know the just okay or the not so good, that is an essential part of a long-term relationship. The opportunity, of course, is to discover who do I have to become in order to navigate my way through that plateau uh, or that valley. But the fact that it's going to happen is a given. So when something's great, it's really important to remind yourself this too will pass. When something's just okay, it's important to remind yourself this too will pass. When things are crappy, it's important to remind yourself that this too will pass. Unfortunately, what often happens is that when people are in a plateau or a valley, what happens is that, you know, we can say, we can give lip service to, well, you know, I mean, you know, things are, life's ups and downs. You have ups and downs. And we remember that very clearly until we're actually in it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And when we're in it, by default, and this has a neurological underpinning as well, but that's sort of separate conversation. But when, when we're in that, we go to something is wrong. It no longer occurs to us, 
us that this is a necessary and integral part of every long-term relationship. So from that perspective, this is very right. You might not like it, you may not want it, but it's utterly necessary. Um, Unfortunately, what happens is when people are in those plateaus or the valleys, they think something is wrong, and then what happens is they, they start questioning, well, maybe this is the wrong relationship or this is the wrong endeavour. Uh, and I'm not saying you shouldn't give up or you shouldn't, you know, sometimes you climb in the wrong mountain. Sometimes in life you are. And there's somewhat of a skill in learning how to make that determination as to whether you are or not. But for me, whether it be entrepreneurship, whether it be rela- uh, relationship uh, in any field of endeavour, it's really important that we understand uh, these components, the way that they play out and understand that when, when they're in those places, it's utterly necessary. The opportunity being, who do I have to become? Yeah, it was so refreshing to read that. And I just, I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to talk about this and get this for today because it is so easy to look at when you're not happy or excited that something is wrong. And I love the articulation that that is actually the most right and normal thing that could ever happen is that you are actually in that period because you're in a long-term relationship with that. So love that. And thank you so much for sharing. Neil, I know we're coming up on time here. So uh, we got to jump in just a second. So I guess, I don't know if we want to fit this in as a quick one, but I always like to ask at the very end as a final question or a parting piece of advice for people is what, what do you find happiness? What does happiness mean to you today, Neil? I've heard you ask this question. Well, I, I would say that, that happiness, firstly, there are many, many things in life that cannot be adequately captured using words. I think it's really important to understand that. So, Brandon, if you just humoured me for a moment, if I'm somebody that's never seen the colour red, can you describe red for me? No, I would not be able to. No. Yet you can look around and see red everywhere. You can see shades of red. You can see variations of red. Experientially, you know red, yet if we were to try to describe any colour for that matter or any experience for that matter, for the most part, they they defy description. Having said that, I would say I am at my happy, my happiest when I'm present to the miracle that existence is, the miracle that, that the privilege of loving and being loved is, and the honour that it is to contribute a gift that I have. A gift is only a gift if it's actually being given. Otherwise, it's a talent. And so it's a privilege for me that I get to experience the miracle of existence. The existence of existence is blows my mind. The fact that I get to witness it and experience it blows my mind. The fact that I get to love and be loved blows my mind. And the fact that I get to contribute something and elevate the experience of humanity uh, is an honour that moves me to tears. And that's when I'm happiest. That's that is, what happiness is. That is incredible. That was one of the most detailed and philosophical and, and actionable. And I don't know, I relate to that a lot. I love, love that response. Neil, where can people find out more about all the incredible stuff that you have going on? Well, you can find out more about me at theneilmore.com. 
and I don't even mean like the Neil Moore. Uh, it's that was really the only only the URL only that I could guess <laughs> that was available across all platforms, all social media. I'm everywhere at thenealmore.com. Okay, I mean cool. the the Neil Moore social media. Otherwise, if you want to check out um, Simply Music, my organisation, simplymusic.com. Cool. We'll have to find the other Neil Moore and and assert your dominance. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so find at thenealmore.com or Simply Music. And I just want to have a really quick conversation with you listening. And I just wanted to say, if this is your very first episode, you could be anywhere on the internet right now. You could be listening to any other podcast and you chose to be hanging out with Neil today and myself and listening to all of his incredible stories. So for that, I'm incredibly grateful. And for you that is a returning listener coming back week after week, I say this every single time, but I'm not going to stop saying it because I appreciate you so much for being here week in and week out. And whether you are new or returning, the favor I have to ask is if you were listening to today of how Neil's incredible story of having starting out as a restaurant in order to pursue success so that he could then pursue his passion and then realizing through a way that he didn't expect that he actually needed to pursue his primary vision in life, which was to pursue musicianship and how that has created a massive ripple effect in the world. That story that you just heard today can absolutely change someone's life if you share it with them. So it will make Neil and I's day if you choose to do that. But whether you choose to do that or not, I appreciate you so much for listening. And Neil, thanks so much for hanging out today. This has been a blast. Thank you, brother. I love you, man. Love you too.